Hello, and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host. And to start off the new year, I have a great episode with Dave Miley. Dave grew up playing tennis, but quickly moved into the administration side of the sport. Most notably, he worked for over 25 years at the ITF as the head of development, um, a job in which he had um, a huge uh, variety of, of roles and saw some some great successes. And uh, we do go into, into some of those achievements um, during the chat. Since leaving that role, um, Dave has run for the presidency of the ITF. And is currently, as of, as of 2020, he is the tennis director for the National Federation in Kazakhstan. So he's working to develop tennis in Kazakhstan. Um, as well as all that, we touch on, on various issues in the world of tennis, um, such as um, unions for the players, on uh, ways to support more players to make a living in tennis. Um, various issues like that. I really enjoyed this chat. I think it's a, a great listen. I think there's an awful lot to take from this. So without further ado, uh, sit back, relax, and here is Dave Miley. Dave, uh, a okay. big thanks for, for coming on to talk today. I uh, just want to start, ask you what superpower you would you would choose if you could choose a superpower. It, well, it's a good question. You know, I guess, I, you know, I've been traveling 150 days a year for 30 years, so be kind of nice to have kind of the, the power like they have in Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty, to be able to say, I want to be in Australia and you're there in Australia and like about three minutes to not have to spend 30 hours and stuck in airports, losing your bags and stuff. So that would, that would be a good, nice power, you know, to be able to jump around the world without having that. But so, you know, what actually funny with travel, I, I find now that uh, with, with internet and emails and WhatsApp. So when you actually get on a plane for 10 hours, you have time to think and plan and and without any interruptions it's kind of nice you know so so i don't know but i think that would be one that would certainly save you a lot of time so for sure good. for sure now dave there's a, there's a lot of stuff i want to touch on obviously you've had a a great career in tennis but just, just to start off how, how did you how did your your journey in tennis start how did you get into tennis it's a good question you know i i was a pretty good junior probably you know top four or five in, in the in my year and uh when i finished I went to UCD for one year and then I got a tennis scholarship. So I went to the States and played college tennis, ended up spending three years in the States and then three years in UCD doing a BCom. So I ended up with two degrees. I wasn't really good enough, but I decided I try to play satellites, which is the low level professional. So I traveled around for about three or four months and I realized I wasn't very good, but I learned a lot, met a lot of players and, and sort of loved tennis. And so having kind of spent six years of university, two degrees, uh, my father wanted me to become an accountant because he was one and, and I decided to work in tennis. So everybody thought I was crazy, but I got into tennis and worked kind of coaching and playing, still playing some of the tournaments um, and doing okay in the tournaments, probably top 10 in the, in the rankings and that and winning quite a few doubles tournaments, especially. So then what happened was I was approached in 88 to, to join a company that owned indoor tennis centers in the UK. Yeah. They wanted me to run them. And so I ran them and then, they got into financial difficulties. So cut a long story short, I bought an indoor tennis center, six indoor courts, a health club, and I had 30 people working for me, including two Irish coaches. You might know Pete Lowther. He worked there. Joe Dwyer worked there. Mm -hmm. um, so eventually, you know, so I was running that with a thousand members, a lot of good players and stuff. And then 
the ITF approached me to work for them. So I kept the center, eventually sold it in 97 for a lot of money, um, and uh, joined the ITF in 91. So it was amazing. I, you know, it was a dream job. I'm uh, working with a guy called Doug McCurdy as his assistant, director of development, and um, was traveling 150 days a year, and then suddenly I was involved in international tennis. I did speak French and Spanish, so I, I you know, I, I, and I had traveled quite a bit. And um, I, and in the meantime, I'd qualified as a coach. I did my LTA top coaching exams and stuff. So combination of having a business background, BCom, and uh, then and an, I had a degree in economics from the States and then tennis. So I got into the business of tennis, but I always treated it as a business because in Ireland, I had a summer camp that made pretty good money and residential camp. And so... Yeah, business of tennis, and and uh, people at the time thought I was crazy, you know, who who can make money out of tennis? But I did, you know, and and found my way. Yeah, and I, w- I wanted to ask how you got into that job in in the ITF, and it sounds like you almost kind of you, you made a bit of a, a bit of a name for yourself in 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 England with those indoor centers. Was that a job you wanted as well? To ITF was that was that a goal of yours? Yeah, well, it was funny because I used to go to the Worldwide Coaches Conference representing Ireland uh, in '87. 89 and I got to know Doug McCurdy and he knew me as one of the people coming from the countries and it's funny because when I was going to these conferences I was like a mosquito I was going around trying to get all the information from the Germans from the Swedes all the countries are doing well I wanted to find out what they ate for breakfast and how their players became good you know and so I learned a lot and I went to the Swedish training center in uh, Bostad and saw the players training there so I learned a lot Uh, but anyway Doug McCurdy he knew I was a young coach and wanting to be, and I had my own indoor center. And so I guess he was kind of impressed. And he thought he had a guy who was leaving, who was retiring, a Swedish guy. And he asked me to join him and be his assistant. So that's how it came about. And yeah, it was my dream job. You know, come on, I'm working in development, which is coach education, player training, junior tournaments, uh, traveling around the world. Basically, my job was to help the member nations, 200 nations, develop tennis. More players, better players. So the whole idea was try to get more people playing, but also identify talented players that we can help to break through. So we helped so many players, including Marcus Baghdadis when he was a young guy from Cyprus. You know, we helped them with grants and stuff to help them break through. And and that was kind of the things I was dealing with. Uh, So, yeah, it was a a dream job. And I I never felt I worked. I was getting paid to do something I liked, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's the thing. That that's the way it should be. But just as I know, you spent along uh, twenty over over twenty years in the ITF. So how did that? How did your kind of career progress through the through the ITF in different roles? Maybe or how was that time overall? Well, yeah. Okay, so I was Doug's assistant. Then Doug was headhunted to be uh, to be director of player development for the USTA. So he moved back to the states. He was American. That was in '97. So I took over as director of development and and. What a lot of people don't realize is that director development is the biggest department in the ITF. So I was in charge of junior tennis, senior tennis, wheelchair tennis, coach ed, player development, um, and also um, technical and anti-doping reported to me as well up until 2010. So the biggest department we had also not just in London, but also a lot of people working around the world for us, 10 development officers plus coaches who travel with different junior teams. So a lot of people, but it was, as I said, like a business. So I was traveling a lot, which was demanding. And uh, I was a single parent, which was kind of a little difficult as well. But I can explain that later on if you want to uh, know a little bit more about that. So it was complicated. But 
look, I really liked it. And, and uh, what I told you earlier, it's all of these things are about, uh, you know, attention to detail, running the business, people things, looking after staff, making sure they know what to do. And, uh, and the ones who don't want to work, maybe changing things. So it's, it's a business. And, but it's a business that I loved. And so it was okay. But it was the biggest department of the ITF. And I, I worked in that position until 2016 when the new president came in, Dave Haggerty. And uh, for different reasons, I decided to uh, resign. And uh, like Nelson Mandela, after 25 years, I, I was, you know, got out. And uh, so, um, and I have done a few things since then. And, and now I'm a tennis director of Kazakhstan Tennis Federation. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to get on to, on to the, a few of those other things that, that you mentioned. But um, obviously, as, as you say, it's the, the biggest department of the ITF. And, you, you know, you listed a, a bunch of things that kind of were under your kind of job description and things you would have worked on. But if you were to pick out a couple of the, the biggest, I guess, achievements or the biggest projects that you worked on during those years, well, what, what kind of main things do you look at? Well, look, you know, I was involved with the, with, you know, a lot of players that became really good in the future. You know, I talked about Marcus Bagdadis there a minute ago, but Azarenka was on our teams as well when she was very young from, from Belarus. So that, that was really nice when you see, and especially when I was leaving the ITF, a lot of four players who became successful were thanking me for the help we gave them. But probably the biggest achievement was, you know, I managed to change the rules of tennis. Um, I don't know whether you know, but the, in 2001, we started some work. I set up a group uh, uh, to look at participation. And uh, the red, orange, green balls, the slower balls that are used for 10 and under, um, a lot of, they weren't being used as much as we wanted them to be used because kids of that age, they should really play with them. They can develop better technique and tactics. So cut a long story short, in 2010, I managed to get the ITF to change the rules of tennis to say that 10 and under competition cannot use a yellow ball, the standard yellow ball. Mm -hmm. So they have to use either a red, orange, green ball, which meant because the tournaments use the balls, the coaches had to use the balls in training. Yeah. So it changed the whole dimension of tennis. And it was only the fifth rule change in the history of tennis mm -hmm. after the tie-break rule and the, uh, a couple of other rules, that the footfall rule that had changed. So it was a big achievement. It took 10 years to do, and it involved the industry because the industry had to change the balls had to color the balls a certain way. We had to promote the rules changes. And even I was very proud that um, I wanted the ATP and WTA to support it. So they, they just said, well, Dave, just come to uh, Madrid. So we went to Madrid and we got all the top players, Federer, Nadal, Azarenka, all the female. They all did videos to promote the program, red, orange, green, use the balls, etc. So that's probably the biggest achievement. But it was really hard to bring everybody together. And there were a lot of critics, you know. We've been using the normal balls for 50 years. Why should we change, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. what I used to say was, would you be happy for your 10, 10 and under kids to be doing their schooling the way they were 50 years ago? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they use computers. They use different things. So the technology changes. So it was a big change. Um, and, you know, those are the sort of things that were really good. But other things, I was involved with the medical commission. I was on the medical commission for 15 years. I was on the coaches commission, which I led for a long time. And... Uh, I was on the Tennis Industry Association, so I was uh, ITF's representative with all the Nikes and different people that used to meet twice a year representing ITF on that. So, I, you know, I learned a lot about the technical side of things and ball manufacturers, etc. So, but the, the rule change is probably the biggest thing because that 
has such an impact on kids having fun. Because you know why the main reasons why kids give up playing tennis? Three reasons. The first one is they're not having fun. Okay, hard to define what fun means, but generally if they're rallying and playing with their friends, they, they have more fun. Second reason is they don't like the coach. They yeah. stop, okay? And the third reason is parental pressure. So we did a lot of work on those things that the coaches need to be much more animators rather than coaches, meaning fun and nice. And, and uh, the balls mean the kids have, have fun. You know, they can actually find a ball where they can play with each other. And uh, we did a lot of work on parents to make sure they didn't put pressure on the kids. So anyway, I think the 10 and under was probably my biggest uh, success. For sure. Now, it seems like now it's, it's crazy that that wouldn't be the way, you know, you look at coaching all around the country and the world, you know, the, all, all the coaching groups. Of course, you use red balls and orange balls. It, it seems mad. That no, no, but, but nobody was using them. Yeah. I tell you, you know, like they, they, were, they were there. But the problem was because the competition was using yellow ball, the parents were telling the coaches use yellow ball to train. So we had some really hard fights. I mean, I had even one time the New York Times I had to write a rebuttal letter to the New York Times, which they published, because some medical doctor or some guy, crazy guy, was saying that uh, it was wrong, the kids were going to get hurt, all this sort of stuff. So a lot of, lot of things being put around the place. We really based it on scientific uh, studies because, for example, a kid of uh, eight years old, to run across the baseline takes them five steps. For a normal person, it takes three and a half steps. But if they use the red or orange court, they only need three and a half steps. So by using the smaller court, it replicates what they should do. And the same with, with soccer. I mean, nobody's playing on a full pitch at eight years old. So yeah. tennis was way behind on these things. And we just sort of caught up. Yeah, that oh, makes total sense. There's another thing I want to touch on is, is participation, which I know you would have been involved with um, as well. But like how obviously you're getting more people to play. And that's obviously going to be good for the sport. But just uh, would you mind just telling me a little bit about work on participation and how that changed over the years? Yeah, well, look, the, the problem with tennis has been that in the past, it was very technical, meaning, you know, it was almost like learning the piano. Look, if you do the scales for a year, after a year, you might get to play music. So tennis was a bit like that. You know, if you, if you shadow swing, you do all this stuff, standing in one place, hold the finish, maybe sometime you get to play tennis. Yeah. The problem today is that people have a low attention span. They want the things now. They want success now. So that's why the balls are very important, even with the adults, that the adults can use red or orange and they can actually rally the first day. The same way that in soccer, the first day, the kids are kicking a ball and scoring a goal. But nobody's telling them how to kick the ball. They're not saying you have to use the side of your foot. They're just playing. After a while, the coaches teach them the technique to play better. Use the side of your foot, etc. So in tennis, we need the same. We need Get them rallying and now give them the, the instruction to help them play better, which is basically the game-based approach. Mm. So participation is very much dependent on getting people to play. In the play and stay campaign, which I put together, which led to the 10 and under, the slogan was serve, rally, score. Hit it over, hit it back, play the point. That's the best part of tennis. Now, coming back to participation, the problem is that coaching has been almost become a sport. I see kids all the time. You ask them, do they play tennis? Yeah, I do coaching on a Tuesday and a Thursday. When do you play? Oh, no, we just do coaching. So for me, participation has, be, has to be driven by user-friendly competition, by user-friendly play and competition, okay? Now, what does that mean? When I use the word play, kids like to play, okay? 
if I say to you, I want to, let's race to the wall, okay? See who gets there first. Yeah. Okay, you beat me or I beat you, but nobody writes it down. That's play. So I like when people play, they keep score, but then nobody writes it down. So that's why red and orange tournaments, they should be just playing. Lots of matches, but nobody's writing it down. Yeah. Competition is where you play and somebody writes it down. So if I beat you, somebody puts it up and they say, I'm better than you. So some people don't like competition, but some people like to play. So in all of these participation for the recreational players, we need a lot more play. You know, okay, guys, everybody comes at 10. We're going to play three hours. Everybody gets to play an hour and a half, play six uh, short set matches. And nobody writes it down. There's pizza, there's beer, whatever you want. But it's a social, lots of play. The other problem you have is this sort of the formats in competition, which has improved a lot. It used to be 32 people come and on the first day, 16 leave. Yeah. The next day, eight leave. That's not very social. So a lot more of the tournaments now are the feed-in system where the players come, 32 players, everybody plays a match every day, and the last day you're playing for first, second, third, fourth, down to the last place. So these are all more user-friendly, okay? So the future for participation is to adapt the competition and the play to the needs and lifestyles of the customers, the tennis customers. What do they need? So the club might want the people to play on a Tuesday night, but maybe the people actually, they need to play Saturday morning. You know, who, what do the customers need? All right, so don't just do what's good for the coach or for the organizer, but actually do what the customers want. And within reason, okay, because it's not absolutely always easy, but user-friendly playing competition is a thing. So competition and play drives the sport. Coaching supports it. People should go to get coaching to play better. Yeah. Now, yeah. what happens in golf? What happens in golf? Okay. Rubbish golfers, what do they do? They buy a putter for $1,000. Why? Because they want to do well in the competition in the club the next week against other players their level. Or they go get a lesson because they want to do better in the competition. Golf is driven by competition. Yeah. Even in the, even in the clubs. Tennis at the moment, when you walk into a club, what do you see on the notice board? Everything to do with coaching. All the groups, doubles, singles, everything coaching, nothing about play competition, not very little. That's really good. Um, I just want to bring it back to your, your kind of journey for a little bit. I know that you spent, before you started working for the ITF and before you moved to England with that centre that you, you worked, uh, you coached in, in Ireland. So like, with, with their experiences and kind of things you learned in that time that then helped you when you went on to, to work as you did in the ITF and in, in that role? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I was still playing a bit, you know, because I was playing the sort of local tournaments and doing okay, but I had quite a good group of young players. I mean, I coached Scott Barron, who got to about 200 ATP, um, Stuart Doyle, who was Davis Cup player, quite a lot of players. I mean, yeah, I could go through them now, but they're really good, good guys, and I stay in touch with them now a lot. So we had... I worked with a lot of uh, Jenny O'Brien who played Fed Cup and stuff. So a lot of good juniors. Um, and I think I, I, I used my, my experience of finding out information about what the Swedes and the Germans were doing. So I think I, I want to be modest, but to a certain extent, I was a little bit ahead of things there because a lot of the coaches weren't focusing much on performance. And I think we did some Kilterna to just open and I used it kind of like my base to do a lot of these training squads and stuff. So yeah, I, I think we, we did some pretty good stuff. I traveled a little bit with some players. Um, 
Michael Nugent, who I played doubles a lot with. We won actually a few tournaments together. I traveled with him to some uh, satellites, which are like the futures now. Um, and Owen Collins was involved. So we had a good group of players. And uh, it comes back to my thing. You know, I, what's disappointing for me to see now is that Ireland is so far behind similar countries in other parts of, of Europe, you know, like Poland, who are so far ahead, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, all these countries that are producing players over and over again. There's this kind of attitude that it can't be done, but of course it can be done. Uh, Ireland has great athletes, has great situation, lots of indoor courts. So, um, but anyway, that, that's another story. Uh, but at the time, I think we did pretty well with the, with the players we had. And Ireland at the time was in the world group of the Davis Cup. So I was in the top 10 of the players and I was practicing with Matt Doyle sometimes when he was back. Sean Sorensen was around and we, you know, everybody was fighting for the last spot. I played off twice for the last spot for the Davis Cup team and lost to Tommy Burke, who got on the team. So we were all around. That's the players below those guys. But we played the world group and they lost to the U.S. in 83. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty good time. Absolutely. You know, I just want to hop into that to, to Irish tennis and just like, well, what do you think from, from looking at Irish tennis? What do you think needs to be done? Because you mentioned those other countries that maybe are similar in some ways, but that, you know, the, the performance of tennis is, is higher. What do you think needs to be done for, for Irish tennis to improve that? Well, you just, just need a systematic approach. You know, I mean, basically the kids below the age of 14 need to be playing about 60 to 80 matches a year, you know, good matches. And they need mm -hmm. to be training probably 20 to 25 hours a week. You know, and then the players over 14 need to be playing 80 to 100 matches, you know, with international ranking goals. And, and uh, you know, it's not so difficult. OK, it needs some budget, but, you know, you can get that maybe from Sword Ireland or from sponsors or whatever. But, you know, it's uh, I mean, players are doing it. I mean, Simon Carr did it by himself pretty much. You know, he he got into the top 50 uh, junior ITF, played the Grand Slams, Georgia Drummy. I used to play with her dad a lot. Um, she's done really well, you know, so it is possible. But you need not just one or two players doing it by themselves because Georgia had a private sponsor. Um, you need a systematic approach. And, and there's so many advantages in Ireland. I mean, they have a national centre with indoor courts. And there's other, you know, now in Dublin, there's a lot of indoor centres. There's, there's in the north, there's loads of indoor centres. In, in the west of Ireland, there's indoor centres. Um, I mean, one example I have, I mean, I just feel it's so defeatist. I hear all the time, Oh, Dave, you know, the education here is very tough. You know, the education's really hard here. I say to them, do you think Federer didn't go to school? What? You think people don't go, have, get education? You know, there's 18 weeks of holidays every year. 18 weeks yeah. in every country. So you can play 18 weeks of junior ITF without taking any time off school. With the internet, you can be doing your studies as you play some of these tournaments outside. You know, so it's organization. It's hard work and it's belief. Yeah. And so if Poland can have loads of players in the top levels, don't tell me Ireland can't. You know, and, and we shouldn't be losing. I'm sorry to say when we lose to Malta in the Fed Cup, something's going wrong. Something's going seriously wrong. And I, I don't want to knock because everybody's trying their best, but it's not so complicated. You know, the players have to do a certain amount of training with high quality, high intensity. When they walk on the court, needs to be training with high level, high quality. And um, if they do the right things and they have the talent, they're going to be good. Simon Carr right now is right on track. He's, he's mm. 550 the last time I talked to him. I think he's 550 in the ATP. 
He's 20 years old. That's, that's exactly where he needs to be. By the time he's 21, 22, he needs to be about 250, getting into Grand Slam qualifying. But he's on track. Georgia Drummond is on track. Um, so it is possible. But when I hear all the kind of defeatist attitude, well, Dave, it's difficult here. It's this, it's that. Come on. It's one of the best economies in the world. You know, you can fly around Europe pretty easily, not expensive, to all these places where there's tournaments. And uh, you've got indoor centers to train. There's no junior player that doesn't have enough court time. Not one talented junior player in Ireland that doesn't have enough indoor court time. They want it. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. No. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, look, I, I like to look at the positives. So, of course, Ireland should have really good players. It's very disappointing, but it's the way it is. Just systematic. You need to be systematic and very organized. I don't, you can't use periodization in, uh, in tennis, but you can use the principles. What you need to do is planification. Planification is where you plan, where do you want to go? Okay, what's your ranking goal? Let's take a junior player who's 16 years old, okay? A boy. By the time he's 16, let's say he's, if he's 500 junior ITF, okay? At the end of next year, I want to be 100 junior ITF. Okay. So what tournaments do I have to play? Okay, I need to play 25 weeks of grade fours and threes and twos and ones. Okay. So if I do that, now, what training do I need? What technical, tactical, physical and mental training will I need to move from 500 to 100? Specific for me, not for every player, for me. Maybe, oh, I need more work on my second serve, technical. Maybe I need to be more up the court, tactical. Maybe I need better strength for my legs, physical. Maybe I need to concentrate more. Mental. Not complicated. All right? So you can't plan your journey unless you know where you're going. I want to be top 100 junior ITF. I'm 500. How am I going to do it? What tournaments? What training? Systematic. Yeah. That's really good. Really good. Um, to, just to, to, to bring it back to, to your journey a little bit, um, you, you, you left, uh, the IT, as you said, uh, 2015, 2016, you, you left the ITF. Just would you touch briefly on, on, on the reasons for, for leaving that and, and moving on? <laughs> uh, I I'm not supposed to. Okay. Um, I signed an agreement at that time um, in exchange for something which I, I'm, I'm not supposed to comment on it. Okay, okay. Thanks. All I can say is that after I left, uh, the new president broke up the department and moved junior seniors and wheelchair to another department and made this department 50% less people that I used okay. to run. Okay. Hmm. No, I, I know, I know later you, you went uh, for, for the presidency of, of the ITF. So just like, well, if, like what, what were your main kind of motivations for that a couple of years later? Um, it was an interesting time because what, what happened was around October 2018, I was approached by representatives of seven nations, including some pretty high-level nations who said, to my surprise, Dave, look, we think you have the profile to run for president. We're not happy with the Davis Cup changes. Would you consider running? I said, look, I think you got the wrong Dave here. You know, you maybe got the wrong number or something. But anyway, after a bit of time, they said, well, look, why not? Look, Dave, you, you know, you know the IT, everybody knows you. You speak English, French, Spanish. You, um, you know, you're... Yeah, everybody knows you. 
So why not? You're from a non-aligned country, you know, you can. So there were a few challenges because at that time uh, there were some, because it's, <laughs> because of some things with Tennis Ireland, it was probably going to get be difficult to get their nomination at the time. But anyway, they were things further down the line. And I'm very happy that our relations are very, very good with Tennis Ireland now. Um, so I decided to run, okay, with the with the support of these countries, and and I did, and I think I did a very good campaign. I tried to, to um, run on the basis of a tennis um, on a tennis message, okay. I you know together for tennis, ITF strong because basically tennis is so um, fragmented. You have seven seven uh, organizations four Grand Slams, ITF, ATP, WTA, plus the players. And all of them are doing different things. None of them are working for the good of tennis. Like I gave some give you some examples, but I was saying, look, why can't we get together and say, wouldn't it be great for the top 300 men and women to make a good living? Does everybody agree? Everybody think that's good? Because at the moment it's 100. Okay, I don't know how we're gonna do it, but if we agree, let's work on that the next four years. Does everybody agree we should promote doubles better? Oh, you agree. Okay. Don't know how we're going to do it, but can we all work together for that? Let's fi find seven or eight things that are good for the sport that we agree to work on together. So that was the kind of thing I was coming at. Now, the difficulty is that, you know, you, if I was trying to get the players and the coaches to, to vote for me, I probably could have won. But I'm trying to get the presidents of all these federations to vote for me, and that's more difficult. Now, I did get, uh, I think it was 52 votes. Not too bad. I finished third behind the Indian guy. And at one stage, the Indian guy was saying he was going to support me, but he decided not to, okay? So there were a lot of different things happening. And, you know, the night before the election, the LTA, having said they were going to vote for me, they voted for Haggerty, but it was only the night before. So yeah. there was a lot of moving parts very interesting for me because I'm not a politician and uh, you know, I traveled to 70 countries in four months, you know, with my campaign, uh, learned a lot, met a lot of people. And uh, you know, I tried to run a campaign with dignity and in the end, I congratulated Haggerty for winning. I don't agree with his policies, um, but I wish them well. And that was it. So I, I feel my message was very well received by, by top players, by, uh, coaches, uh, but this is not the people that vote. The vote, people who vote are the presidents, and generally the presidents are people who, you know, became presidents of their club, then they became presidents of, of their region, like Leinster or Munster, then eventually they become president of their, or they get on the board of, of the, and then they become president of their, their federation. And some of them are knowledgeable about tennis, some of them are less knowledgeable. Um, so it's a different kind of uh, thing. But look, it was difficult as well. I was an executive uh, running for president. So to a certain extent, one person said to me one day, they said, Dave, you know your problem? People like you picking the grapes, but not coming up and drinking the wine at the table. So I'd been picking the grapes for a long time. I'd been working in tennis as an executive. And now I was coming into the political domain which yeah. some people didn't like. And I, I understand because it, it kind of threatens a little bit the difference between the elected people and the executives. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's a good experience and, and I, I'm glad I did it. Uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. 
Um, and, and, and by the way, yeah. so I just want to say, I want to say yeah, the yeah. podcast that that what was really nice was that I, I went and presented to Tennis Ireland in, in March uh, 2019. And the board unanimously agreed to support my candidature. And I was very grateful for that, you know, because there was a lot of water had got hopefully passed under the bridge. And, uh, you know, from the time when uh, there was some disputes or dif difficult situations over the chief executive position. But for me, that was all in the past. But some people, you know, were not willing to let that go. And so it was just nice that I think the people, they realized my intentions were good. I also, my intentions for Irish tennis are always very good. You know, I, it's my home. I still have another home in Ireland. I come back quite often. And, and I'd love to see Irish players doing better. I'm willing to help anytime anybody wants, but it's fine, you know? I, I've got a lot of other things I, I, I'm doing as well. So um, that's it. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Now you mentioned um, just a minute ago about, about, I guess, increasing the amount of players that can, can make a living like, as, uh, from, from the sport. And I know that um, in the last couple of years, the transition tour was kind of brought in to, with that goal. I don't think that I think it's fair to say that didn't quite succeed. But just in your, from your point of view, what, what, what do you think does need to be done to, 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 to allow more people or more, more players to, to succeed and to, to make a living from, from pro tennis? Look, people have to think outside the box a bit. They have to be willing to change. The transition tour was no change. Come on, it was the same prize money with the same number of players in the draw, how can you increase the prize money? It's still 32 players with 15,000. It's ridiculous. It's still the same amount of money. Um, yeah. the, the, the logos and everything were different. It's fine, but it wasn't the same. It was just basically the same. So, for example, if you want to do this, supposing you said that the 15s and the 25s were 16 draw with big qualifying. All right? Suddenly... The players who are good will double their prize money straight away, double. And because it's four days for the tournament instead of a week, maybe they can play six tournaments in a month and they triple their money, the good players. There's one example. Yeah. yeah. Second example is at the moment, okay, COVID has changed everything, but basically there are a limited number of 250s, ATB 250s. Let's just talk about the men for a second, okay? So what I see around the world is there's probably about 25, 30 cities that want to have a 250. They want to have a 250, but they can't get it because they're limited. Why are they limited? Because if they're limited, the value of the tournaments that exist are higher. And so people like IMG who own them, they can sell them for more or lease them for more. But if, for example, every week they had double the number of 250s, double the number of players would make a living. Yeah. Simple as that. So people are not working in the interest of the sport. And I was part of an organization, so probably people will point the finger at me saying I'm partly responsible, maybe I am. But each of the seven organizations have people who make very good living, they're doing fine, their organizations are okay, and they don't have a vested interest to change the status quo. It's fine. The four Grand Slams are doing great, ATP, WTA, ITF, Everybody's, I mean, there's so many anomalies. For example, the players, in any business, you cannot be an employer and a union, okay? At the moment, the ATP is an employer, but it's also a union. The WTA is an employer and it's also a union. In my opinion, the players had to, should have a separate organization 
which negotiates in good faith with the ITF for Davis Cup Fed Cup Olympics, with the Grand Slam for prize money at those events, and with the ATP and WTA for the tour. It doesn't make sense that the ATP and WTA tour should have a, an advantage over the other organizations because they have the players. Doesn't make sense. So it's just, again, an anomaly and what, what's some of these things that are wrong with tennis. So coming back to your question is, in order to increase the number of people making a living, people have to be prepared to change the current system. And the transition tour talked about, we did it to increase the money. What they did was they excluded so many players from tennis. They made the, the qualifying smaller and players that played Davis Cup for smaller nations couldn't get into any tournaments and Fed Cup. So, I mean, I see what they were trying to do, but it just, you know, unfortunately, they didn't do what was good for the customers. Who are the customers? The players. At the moment, when you see, it's so difficult to get to 300 ATP or WTA. It's really hard, okay? These players are good athletes. They're really good, and they've trained hard. They've given up a lot in their life. And they've given up a lot in their life to lose $100,000 a year playing the sport they love. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So come on, guys, let's do something. But nobody wants to do it. So I tried my bit. You know, if you, I don't really ever, ever had a chance to read my, um, my prospectus for president, um, but it was all in there. Yeah. If the players and coaches have been voting, I think I could have won, but that's okay. My way of shaking up tennis a little yes. bit. Yeah, yeah. I just um, another. You mentioned the unions there and how that is something that you uh, see as as being, I guess, necessary to help with that. But obviously, the PTPA is something that that came about this year. What are your thoughts on on that, or do you think something else needs to be put in place? Look, look, Djokovic sees what's happening. You know, the problem is he sees that the ATP is controlled a little bit too much by the by the tournament directors and not so much by the players. So that's what he, you know, so that's what they're trying to do. Now, I'm not saying right or wrong because I know Federer and Nadal are against it, so I don't have all the information. But what I'm saying earlier is that generally the principle, I think, should be that the players need another organization that, that negotiates in good faith with the people, the employers. It's a normal system and structure. So uh, I see what they're trying to do, and I, I, I think... They got a lot of flack about it, but there's some sense in it. And it's not the first time, you know, Wayne Ferreira back in uh, about 15 years ago, tried to do the same thing. Because what happens is when the players are very young, they don't see what's happening. When they get to about 30, they start to understand a bit better. And that's when they kind of sometimes try to do something, but sometimes it's too late. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I think, look, the, the, the players, it, it, the structure needs to be a little bit different. At the moment, it's just too many, uh, too fragmented. Yeah, for sure. And just another point I'd be interested just to touch on is, is COVID and I guess its effect on, on tennis. Obviously, this year, there, it was obviously massively disrupted. But do you see any, over the next couple of years, two, three, five years, do you see any long-term effects that COVID could have on the sport, positive or negative? Look, it's, the world has changed. It's incredible. You know, they, they, um, 
there's less tournaments, which means the tournaments that exist at the moment are so tough. I mean, the futures that I saw the cutoff uh, next next month in January in Egypt and uh, Turkey are so high. I mean, my God, you know, it's hard for any players to get in because there's so few tournaments in Europe and also Asia's closed up. So it's having very tough consequence at the moment. Um, Long term, I'm hopeful that, you know, by the time we get to the second half of the year, things will open up with the with the vaccine and everything like that. But at the moment, it's it's, you know, not many tournaments. And so it's it's a very tough situation. Um, but look everywhere the world, I mean, people are destroyed. I mean, so many. I mean, also in tennis, I mean, tennis coaches who previously travel with players, there's nowhere to go. They're not getting any income. Uh, so people are, are affected badly by it. Uh, and uh, and the Grand Slams, I mean, look, I, I don't know what the financial was for the US Open and the uh, French Open, but I'm sure having been making a lot of money, 300 million probably per tournament, probably they made 50, I don't know, but probably right. there's a lot less money for them, for the, for, so everybody's impacted. Absolutely, it's definitely difficult times and hopefully come out stronger for it at the end but i guess it's difficult well we'll see yeah <laughs> we'll see um, yeah no just another another uh, uh, thing just to, to touch on is i know that you recently uh, started started a a role in in kazakhstan in, in the tennis federation in kazakhstan so just tell me a little bit about how, how did that uh, come about for you to, to start working in, in kazakhstan well it's interesting um i was supposed to do some uh, projects for fifa uh, in 2020 Okay. Uh, it's a long story, but Stephen Martins used to be Davis Cup captain of, of uh, Belgium, but he um, he now works for FIFA as a technical director. So he asked me to do some work for them. But then all of that was cancelled. Okay, so basically I was like everybody else sitting around um, um, London in the lockdown. And then they approached uh, Bulat, who's the president, approached me and said, Dave, would I be interested in, in helping them to get a little bit more organized? And, you know, I knew that they have quite a few players in the top levels of the game. And, and so anyway, I went over in June and had meetings with them. I was paid, spent a week in Kazakhstan and um, saw the indoor tennis centers they had, met with the president and uh, agreed terms. So it's a pretty good place, um, being paid pretty well. And uh, they're a bit disorganized, like a lot of countries. So they have a lot of resources and uh, they have a a training center for 24 players living and training in, in Nur Sultan in a nice center. They have other players training in other parts of the country. Um, six players in the top 100, a couple of players playing the qualifying of the Grand Slams. Um, so very good level, World Group Davis Cup, Fed Cup, and a lot of tournaments. So I decided this was a good challenge. Um, I, I'm not going to go into the detail, but there's a lot of, like a, a lot of my maths teacher used to say, it can always be better, room for improvement. Yeah. So... Uh, I think I've oh, in the first three and a half, four months, we've restructured things, put a new structure in place for player development, changed some of the tournament structure to make it a little more user friendly. And uh, what I told you earlier about what I was saying about Ireland, but I, we set international goals for every player over 14. So very, basically every player has a goal by the end of next year they have to try to achieve. Yeah. And their coach has to put the tournaments together and then the training plan to support that and we have to approve it. If we approve it, they get some help. If we don't approve it, they don't get help. If they reach the goal or are close, they'll get support the year after. If they don't, they won't. So it's much more um, 
I wouldn't use the word pressured, but just more targeted and, and players have to achieve and the coaches have some pressure to achieve. But international goals, because before what they were doing was like, oh, I was Kazakhstan champion under 14. Well, I love it, but it's not enough. I want to know, you know, do you have a Tennis Europe under 14 ranking or do you have an international ranking junior ITF in the top thousand, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so that's how it came about. And uh, I like living there. It's a very interesting city. It's uh, one side where I live, which is near the Federation, is the old Soviet old town. And the other side is like Dubai with all these Norman Foster buildings that have been built and about a million people in the city. So a bit like Dublin. Um, but I live 90 second walk to the Federation, which is good because it's really cold. It was minus 21 when I left. Um, and my, my gym is another three minutes away. And it's really nice, you know, uh, nice to see kids in the river. The river's frozen for the last month. They're playing ice hockey in the river, sliding, doing stuff. So it's a new experience for me. Um, but Everywhere you go is warm. So once you're inside the indoor centers, everything is really warm. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. So I'm back there on Jan Jan uh, December 31st. And my contract is until the end of August. And maybe I renew it. Let's see what happens. And uh, I'm back in Dublin when the COVID finishes. I have an apartment there. So I'll probably jump back a little bit during the year. But uh, yeah. my apartment's right beside Fitzwilliam. It's like at the gate of Fitzwilliam. Ah, brilliant. So. So it's quite handy and I'm a member there. So, but I haven't been able to get back for the last year because of all the stuff with COVID. So that's how Kazakhstan came about. And I really enjoy it because we have good players. I mean, we have, in my opinion, seven or eight players between the age of 14 and 16 and the boys who are really good. And about another seven girls in the same age groups that I think have, um, you know, good potential if they do the right thing. So let's see what happens. Brilliant. It's good to hear this. All the best with with that over the next few months and potentially longer. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to hear. Now, just a couple more questions for you, Dave. Um, conscious sure. of, of your time, but just a couple more things to be interested to touch on. Um, and obviously, you've over the last number of years, you've done a lot of traveling, as you said. Um, about half the year, you'd be on the road, and all the countries you would have visited um, over the presidential um, race. Um, but if you were to look at a, a favorite place you've you've got to visit or a favorite trip you've taken, um, would you have, would any stand out to you? It's interesting. I, you know, I started uh, when I when I took the year off because after I left the ITF, I took a year off and I spent a bit of time in Italy and South America, a few things. I was kind of just taking it easy for a while. But I, I started to write a book about travel and tennis. So maybe sometime I'm going to publish it, but I, I'm sort of halfway through it. So we'll see. But just sort of funny stories about what happened when you travel and also linked into tennis stories. So we'll see whether I ever whether I ever finish it. But look, people ask me all the time, what's my favorite place? So the problem is that it's for different reasons. There's nice things about places like my probably my fav favorite country that has everything is Italy. It has mountains, lakes, uh, food, everything. Italy has everything in one country. OK, white sand, skiing, everything. So I love the cities in, in Italy and uh, I like Paris and Rome as cities because I spent a lot of time in Paris for the Roland Garros and Rome for the tournament. You know, if you want white stands, the Pacific's incredible. I love New York for US Open. I like London because I live here. Dublin is my city, so I love being back there. So for different reasons, um, you know, Miami is the Latin American capital. I love being there, the music and everything. So, so you can't say one place, but uh, the question always is, would you live somewhere? That's always a question I'd say, you know, because visiting is one thing, but would you live in New York or would you live in Miami? Um, I like living in London. 
I think I could live in Dublin again. Uh, I think I would love a lifestyle where I live in uh, one city for three or four months a year and another city for another three or four months of the year, you know, moving with the, with the climate and stuff. So, but no, the, the, when I say lots of places, but lots of funny stories, I'll give you one story that when I, I arrived in uh, Azerbaijan one time, I was coming out nine o'clock flight and they were supposed to meet me at the Federation. So as I came out, I'm looking for the guy and the guy goes, David, I said, yeah, yeah. Oh, David, come, 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 come. Okay. So he welcomed me and we got to the car, put my bags in the car and we start driving. And in, in Azerbaijan, the, the road is very straight from the airport. So we're driving and it's kind of quiet. So, but you know, Irish people, we, we like to, can't have silences. So I said, so we're going to the hotel. He said, yeah, we go to apartment. I said, but, we're going to the hotel, surely, you know? Nit, we go apartment. I said, so what position in the Federa tennis federation do you have? Tennis? Nit, play table tennis, no tennis. I, he looks at me, says, David Oil Company? No, no, David Tennis. <laughs> we both looked at each other about five miles from the airport, turn around, go back, and there we found David Oil Company waiting for, yeah, for him, yeah. you know? So anyway, a lot of stories like that that are kind of crazy, but... Um, yeah, so, but travel is travel. You know, the interesting thing about travel is that no sport travels as much as tennis. The mm. golfers tend to play in America and then cross for the majors, but they don't crisscross the world. So, but people who travel a lot, you never hear the players talk about jet lag. They never acknowledge it. They never talk about it. The coaches as well. The people who travel a lot complain the least. The people who travel the least, they complain the most. That's generally it. So you don't hear people, and I never... Travel, I don't complain. You get off the plane, go to the gym, just get yourself back. No problem. Yeah. It's partly mental. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can imagine, but yeah. Um, and I, I didn't know about that. It's great to hear about the, the book, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to read that sometime. If it well, can. let's see. See if I ever finish it, you know? Um, to just, um, if I was to ask the, the, the biggest one or biggest two things that you've learned from, from time in tennis or life or anything, what, what's, is there anything that would stand out to you as, as a, a big lesson? Look, um, probably the toughest situation, I had, you know, I, I don't know whether you know, but when my kids were very young, my wife died suddenly, okay? So life changed for me in a moment. I had everything. My wife was fantastic. I had three great kids, everything. I was traveling around the world. So uh, it took me a long time, my God. But you learn that life's unpredictable. You know, you live the moment, enjoy the moments, and friends, family, health is very important. So they're the kind of lessons in life. And so I'm lucky I work in something really good I, I like working in tennis and uh yeah I, I try not to it's like a tennis player you know what's mental strength mental strength is staying in the moment not thinking about what happened not thinking about what happens if i win the future not thinking about the past just next point and that's really what life's about it's not easy but just trying to live the moments and enjoy the moments knowing that life's unpredictable and things can can change very fast um I think tennis is a great sport. It teaches you a lot. Uh, it's why I, I really think it's a great sport for people to play because, you know, you, you have match points, you lose, you, you, you have match points against you, you win, you play in all conditions, you have bad calls, all the things you have to deal with. It teaches you a lot in life about dealing with misfortune uh, and dealing with also success in the right sort of way uh, because everything, you know, changes fast in the score. 6-3, 3-1, point for 4-1, you lose it, 3-2, you lose that set, lose the match. You know, how many times it happens? The scoring in tennis teaches you a lot. So 
those two things I think I've learned in my life just from misfortune, unfortunately, but also the, the tennis, I think, teaches you a lot. No matter what level you play at, you've learned to uh, deal with situations. And that's why tennis players, I think, are quite good in business eventually, because they learn how to deal with problem solving, because that's what tennis is all about. Good stuff. I think that brings me nicely to my, my final two two questions. Just well, what's your, your biggest piece of advice that you would you would give to, to somebody? Um, you know what, what people that I work with in my department always, I used to say, say to them, okay, uh, first of all, attention to detail is very important. Okay. So attention to detail, you know, tying everything up. So you have a meeting, write a letter confirming the actions, what you talked about, all that attention to detail is very important. But basically if you want to be exceptional in life, just do what you say. 90% of people don't do what they say. They say they're going to call you back. They don't. They say they're going to be there. They're not. They say they're going to have the report. They don't. The people that I like to work with are the people who say they're going to do something. They do it. I know if they say they're going to have the report, it's going to be there or they're going to tell me it's not. So what I say to people, do what you say, because then you'll be exceptional. Really, because you see in life so many people around you, they don't do what they say. And uh, those are the people I want to have around me. And a lot of it is kind of. Uh, you know, for the players as well, it's when you step into the court, you know, you need to work with high quality, high intensity. I know it's practice, but if you watch Nadal practice or a Serena, it's like, it's like as much as a match, the intensity, the quality, you know, the fight. Whereas I see players in many places, including Kazakhstan, when they're practicing, it's like on holidays. This is practice and a match is something different. Same with work. When you go in, you know, if you're going to work, you might as well work hard rather than work, not work at all. The time goes by quicker when you work hard. So this is why I think this sort of thing of these things in, in work, work hard, attention to detail, do what you say. A lot of that's going to, going to help you. Um, and that's what I've always tried to live my life by is, is, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to, I'll be there. Uh, yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, the other thing I learned was about um, just a little bit of tip about these days, you never finish your emails. You're never done. OK, so the tendency is I used to be saying to myself, OK, if I finish today, uh, I'll go to the gym. If I finish my work, I'll go to the gym. And a lot of times then you wouldn't do exercise. So now what I learned about eight or 10 years ago is the night before I put in my calendar a meeting to do go to the gym. So. It might be sometimes in the morning, sometimes at lunchtime, sometimes in the evening, but I put it in like a meeting and I don't cancel meetings. So yeah. even if I'm busy, even if people are going to look at me, like I, I go and I go and do that at that time. And then if I really need to finish stuff, I'll sleep one hour less and I'll finish my emails. Because if you do your exercise, you're going to work more effectively. If you don't, you're going to really struggle. So it's just a tip I have for people is just put in your calendar. It has to be different times, like a meeting and you don't cancel meetings yeah. because it's important. Otherwise you don't, your whole uh, way of working is going to be much less effective. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Okay. Good. $20. Nice <laughs> That's good. stuff. really good. Great to hear. And there's a final question, Dave, just before I let you go. What's your favorite thing about tennis? My favorite thing. Yeah. About tennis. Look, I think the scoring is incredible. How the guy invented the scoring like that. It's just, you know, you're never safe. 
So yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty incredible. I think the problem solving nature that I talked about earlier, I think that's really great. And, uh, you know, I had the privilege of, of going every year to the Grand Slams and, and Australia probably every two or three years. And I love the fact they're so different. You know, Paris in end of May, early June is perfect. New York when it is. Wimbledon, okay, I live three minutes away and I'm a member of the club, so it's very close to my heart and stuff. I play my tennis there. And Australia, which is like uh, so relaxed. So all these sort of things make tennis very special. Golf has the three majors in the US and then the British. So it's, it's not the same. You know, our, uh, tennis is great like that. And there's so many different cities with the tournaments. And, and also the players, because tennis has players from so many countries uh, successful in it, you know, that, you know, you have players coming from all over the place. I mean, look at Tunisia now with Ons Jabour and Jaziri, yeah. uh, top 100 players. And so, yeah, it, it's just a, a great sport. Um, scoring teaches players a lot. And uh, I feel very privileged to be working in it because I see a lot of my friends who went in to be accountants and lawyers and, okay, successful. I think I've been successful as well. I'm quite happy with it. But I... I I wonder, do they have the same sense of kind of enjoyment that I have in, in what I do, which is um, I really, really uh, lucky, feel fortunate to be able to work in, in the sport. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it is great sport. So it's good to hear. And yeah, no, just a, a big, a huge thanks for, for talking, Dave, for, for giving your time no, no. today. It was, it was great to, to get to speak Anytime. to you. Anytime. Was, great and look, to... you can just send the big fee through to my bank account. I'll send you the details. <laughs> Brilliant, good stuff. Yeah, okay, good, stuff. good luck with that. Really, so I, I really think what you're doing is great. You know, there's somebody your age is doing this. It's very unique, and I, 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 I give you credit for that. So well done. Okay, keep it up. Thanks, thanks. Big thanks once again to Dave Miley for his time. Really appreciate getting those insights. I think it was fascinating to hear about um, such a great tennis journey to date, and and all the best to Dave for 2021. Um, as always, I, I welcome any any feedback you may have, any thoughts that uh, this chat may have, have may have provoked. Um, so if you feel so inclined, feel free to um, send me an email at irishtennisupdates at gmail.com or to send a message on Twitter, whatever you prefer. A big thanks for listening to this episode. And if you did enjoy it, I would encourage you to, to like, to leave a review, to share the podcast on social media or with anybody that you think might, might uh, enjoy it as well. Hope everyone is having a good start to the year. Um, staying safe as always. And until the next episode, I will be back soon. Um, I've been Adam. Thank you for listening and goodbye.